And today we are going to commence our study of the second section, verses 13 through 18. And so with that end in view, please follow along closely as I read for us this portion from God's Word. Again, that is James chapter 1, commencing in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So there you have it, the second section in this epistle penned by James. What we're going to do is the following. Today we're going to restrict our focus to verses 13, 14, and 15. As you know, or at least most of you know, next Sunday being the first Sunday of the month, we're going to go to the book of Psalms. Then we'll come back after that and we'll have a Sunday which we'll give to verses 16 and 17, and then another Sunday when we will focus on verse 18. So that's my plan tentative plan, nothing written in stone, but my plan as we move forward through this second section. So we're narrowing our focus, restricting our focus today to verses 13, 14, and 15. Very simple approach. James gives us three truths. I want to make sure we get them. There's a truth in verse 13. There is a truth in verse 14. There is a truth in verse 15. Having understood these truths... I then want to invite you into my office, and we're going to have a little pastoral visit, one-on-one. Yes, you, each of you, a little pastoral visit. And we're going to look at the practical pastoral implications of these three truths as they pertain to the title for this sermon, which is simply this, The Battle Within. And so if you are waging a battle within this day, and if you are a believer, you are, I guarantee it, waging a battle within, these verses are for you. These three truths are God's word to you. And then we're going to get very personal and see how it applies as we step into my office. So here's truth number one, verse 13 that James gives us. The origin of temptation. Where does it come from? That is what he is simply answering in verse 13. What I want to do, however, is back up into verse 12 and begin reading there. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. 13th verse, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Boy, did James ever shift gears there. Between those two verses, what has verse 13 got to do with verse 12? Verse 13 has everything to do with verse 12, not just verse 12, but that entire first section, verses 2 through 12. Why? What is James dealing with 
in verses 2 through 12. What is his principal theme? Trials. What point has James made abundantly clear? Simply this, God is behind our trials. He is not only behind them, he is over them, under them, and through them. God tests us through trials. James knows his audience. The Spirit of God knows us. What might we think? What might we conclude on the basis of what James has made clear in verses 2 through 12? Well, if God is behind my trials, he might also be behind what? My temptations. And James wants to stop it right there, nip it in the bud. Let no one say when he is tempted. I am being tempted by God. He is no longer speaking of trials, or we might even use the word temptations that arise without. He is now speaking of temptations within. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. There's the truth, the origin of temptation. Three questions to make sure we're getting it. Number one, why would anyone blame God for temptation? Why would anyone say, I am being tempted by God? The answer is pretty straightforward. I can do no better than what we read in the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 2. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. In other words, by nature, we think we've got it together. We think we're pretty good. We think we're pretty special and when things go wrong, we derail, we sin, we will look for anyone to blame. Anyone and anything, including God himself. We have this natural propensity, this natural inclination when we do wrong to look for a scapegoat. It's not my fault. Therefore, it is not my responsibility. A man involved in an automobile accident submitted the following explanation to his insurance company. The pedestrian had no idea which way to turn, so I ran over him. Another man, automobile accident, same insurance company. The telephone pole was approaching fast. I attempted to swerve out of its path when it struck my front end. All right, let's just face it, right to the quick. That's how we go through life. That is how we go through life. We will blame anything and everything to absolve ourselves of what? Responsibility. It's not my fault. That's why we would blame God. Second question is this, how do we blame God? We blame God in two ways. We blame God when we lay our sin on his power. We lay our sin on his power. God is creator. God made me this way. Ergo, it isn't my fault. That's the first way we'll do it. The second way we'll do it is as follows. We will lay our sin on his providence. God is governor. God is sovereign. God decrees all things. Therefore, it isn't my fault. That's how we'll do it. That's how our first parents did it. Adam and Eve, there they are in the garden. They have sinned. 
God confronts them. Who does Adam blame? Eve. Who does Eve blame? The serpent. What are they doing? Eve is God's creation. The serpent is God's creation. Therefore, they are shifting blame to the creature. The creature made by whom? God. Therefore, they are actually blaming whom for their deviant behavior? God. Adam says as much. The woman whom you gave me. It's not my fault. Oh, let me repeat it, friends. We go through life like that. And the sooner we realize it, the better. We want to absolve ourselves of responsibility. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. And we delude ourselves. And we will blame God by laying our sin on his power, laying our sin on his providence. A few years ago, a young man invited me for lunch. And there we went for lunch. In the course of life, he shared with me how he wanted to get involved with ministry, how he even wanted to partner with me in ministry. Oh, okay. And so I asked him a little bit, started to dig into his background, and and sure enough, he had recently uh, been divorced. He had been divorced because he had committed adultery, and since being divorced, he had been involved in what I would call two additional adulterous relationships. And um, he explained all this, and... um, really wasn't that penitent about it all. And I thought I'd better confront him on that and uh, say, well, some, something, two plus two isn't equaling four in this case. Something is, is wrong here, dreadfully wrong. And I uh, confronted him with his sin. He got, he got quite annoyed with me and very animated. And his response was this, God is sovereign. God obviously decreed what is happening Therefore, God can obviously bring glory out of what has happened. Let's just move on and talk about something else. I nearly choked on my jalapeno potato chips. The conversation went nowhere after that point. Why? Because I was sitting across from a hard-hearted individual who was wallowing in his sin and was actually blaming God for it and hiding, like the rascal he was, hiding behind the sovereignty of God. Oh, we do it. We do it. Here it is. If he wasn't so annoying, that person over there, I wouldn't struggle with anger. If she wasn't so demanding, I wouldn't struggle with resentment. If he hadn't done that, I wouldn't be struggling with bitterness. If she would only do that, I wouldn't struggle with envy. If they were more understanding, I wouldn't struggle with irritability. If life wasn't so difficult, I wouldn't struggle with anxiety. If the opposite sex wouldn't dress like that, I wouldn't struggle with lust. If my spouse treated me better, I wouldn't run into the arms of another individual. And on and on and on it goes. If only, if only, if only, if only... And what are we doing? We are shifting blame, refusing to man up, refusing to acknowledge our sin and our responsibility for our sin, thereby ultimately casting blame on God. The third quick question is this, who should we blame? There's an inferred syllogism in verse 13, syllogism, logic. 
In logic, there's a major premise. What's the major premise? Verse 13, God cannot be tempted with evil. Wasn't the Lord Jesus Christ tempted? He was tested from without. He was not tempted from within. God cannot be tempted with evil. That is, God cannot be solicited to do evil. That is the major premise. What is the minor premise? He himself tempts no one. He who cannot be solicited to evil cannot solicit anyone to evil. What is the inferred conclusion? Therefore, when it comes to sin and temptation, I have no one to blame but myself. And I cannot run and hide. I cannot excuse myself. I cannot blame anyone or anything else. Certainly not God. I have to own, take ownership of my sin. The second truth in verse 14 is this. The deceitfulness of desire, the deceitfulness of desire, but each person is tempted when, what happens? When he, she is lured and enticed by his own desire, the deceitfulness of desire. A couple of questions so that we're clear on what James is saying. First question is this, what does he mean by desire, desire? Paul is very helpful. You can go, for example, to Ephesians chapter 2, and he makes it clear there. There are what we identify as the desires of the body, okay? Uh, our senses, taste, sight, smell, we desire things. I desire ice cream. Why? Because I have determined that it tastes good. Desires of the body. We, we, might, we might call these the sensitive appetite. There are desires of the mind. I desire truth. I long for truth because I find truth very satisfying. Nothing wrong with the desires of the body and of the mind. That is how God created us in his image. What is the problem? We are fallen creatures. We no longer reflect the image of God. And so Paul says what in Ephesians 2? He makes it clear that we live, we now live, Ephesians 2 verse 3, we now live in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. What are the passions of the flesh? It is simply this. By virtue of Adam and Eve's fall, the governing principle, the thing by which I operate, function, my rule is no longer my love for God. As a matter of fact, the Bible makes it clear, I don't love God by nature. No, my rule, my principle by which I make decisions, I value things, I go through life is what? I am in love with myself. And that is the essence of our problem. We are lovers of self. The Bible calls it flesh. Because of that governing principle, love of self, what happens to the desires of the body and the desires of the mind? They become twisted absolutely twisted beyond recognition. And the desires of the body become gluttony, sensuality, immorality. And the desires of the mind become envy, malice, pride, greed, ambition. And James' point is what? Simply this, that this desire now, us living in the passions of the flesh, fulfilling, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, this is the origin of temptation. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Who he is by nature. Whom she is by nature. Second question is this. What does he mean by that expression, lure and enticed? Lure. Yes, it is what you're thinking. Fishing. Allure. That is it exactly. And so when we go fishing, I go fishing. I, I don't simply drive up to the pond, hop out of the truck, and grab my rod, attach a hook, and throw the hook into the water. I don't do that. Why? Because fish, although they're not the brightest creatures on God's good earth, um, they at least know not to go for a bright, shiny hook. They're not going to go for it. What do I have to do to the hook? I need to disguise it. I need to hide it. And so I have any number of lures. I can't attach most of them to the hooks. So I always go back to the old default, good old-fashioned worm, and on it goes. And I simply hide the hook so that when I cast it into the pond, into the water, the fish sees it, the hook is hidden from view, and it is lured, and it is enticed. But in being lured and enticed, it is actually being what? Lied to. It is being deceived. It thinks it's going to get a pleasurable meal, when in actual fact it's going to get a hook stuck, stuck through its mouth and the roof of its head, and all the agonizing pain that goes along with that and the discomfort. That is James' point here. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You know, our society, our society functions to a great extent on that very principle. The idea of disguise, deceive, deception through disguise. Deception by luring and enticing. As a matter of fact, much of the commercial industry is based on that premise. I was, I was just reflecting on it earlier this morning. I don't know why my mind's eye went to this. Boy, someone could have a field day with this. But I, I went to the Marlboro Man. I don't, don't ask why. Just forget it. I, I'm clueless as to why. But do you remember the Marlboro Man? What a specimen of masculinity, right? Rugged, frontier man, cowboy, independent, undoubtedly a nice, sensitive, tender side. But there he was, this <laughs> specimen of humanity with the cigarette just sort of flopping casually out of his mouth, right? Why? Because they're trying to sell what? Cigarettes. Now, here's the interesting thing. In those commercials and the big billboards plastered all over the place, how come they never showed the guy in the hospital room? How come they never showed the guy who looks like he's 80, but he's actually only 50, and his face is all withered because he's been smoking these things since he was 12 years old, and his hair is yellowed, his fingers are yellowed, he's hooked up to the oxygen tank, he's cancer-riddled, and he's spitting up, coughing up half a lung. Why don't they ever show that in the commercial? Because they are trying to lure and entice. That is what desire does. That is what the passions of our flesh, the desires of the body and the mind, corrupted by self-love, that is what they do. Take envy, for example. It is destructive. It is abusive. It is offensive. And it is downright repulsive. It has detrimental consequences in the lives of others. 
It can lead to verbal, psychological, and physical abuse. The individual knows it. And yet there is still something very alluring about envy and satisfying that passion of the flesh. Take sensuality. Our society is in the grip of sensuality. You take any, any, any form of immorality. You take pornography, for example. It is degrading to people. It's downright disgusting. It is dishonoring to God. It is destructive, ultimately, to sexuality. And it is detrimental, let me number the ways, to marriage. And the fellow knows it, and yet is still lured and enticed by it. Take gluttony, whether it be for food or drink. It's destructive. Its consequences are physical and psychological. It impacts family and friends. It brings shame. And he knows it. She knows it. And yet still something so enticing and compelling. You see, it comes in a guise. And it dresses itself up. There's the hook. Just bobbing there in the pond. There it is. But you don't see the hook. But no, actually, this is what's so crazy about it. We do know it's a hook. We know the hook is there. But the worm is on there. And there is something so alluring and so attractive. And it draws us in. It tells us that the pleasure will outweigh the pain. It never does. And it tells us that ultimately satisfying this desire will be harmless. Harmless. One of the biggest lies going. Harmless. Raccoons. Where am I going with this? Hang on. Raccoons go through a glandular change at 24 months, after which they become very aggressive, especially males. <laughs> a zookeeper had a friend named Julie who had a pet raccoon. Since a 30-pound raccoon equals a 100-pound dog in a fight, he felt compelled to warn her of the coming change at 24 months. Oh, it'll be different for me, she replied with a smile. Bandit, appropriate name, Bandit wouldn't hurt me. Three months later, Julie underwent plastic surgery for facial lacerations sustained when her raccoon attacked her for no apparent reason. Sin always comes dressed in adorable guise. And as we play with it, it is so easy to say, oh, it will be different for me. But the results are glaringly predictable. Predictable. What are those results? It brings us to the third truth. James drives home, verse 15, the certainty of death. You've got the origin of temptation. You've got the deceitfulness of desire. Now the certainty of death, 15th verse. And he basically gives us the life cycle of desire. Then desire, when it has conceived. So there's the start of the life cycle. It's conception. And so we have these desires. It's the way we're wired now by virtue of the fall. We live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And when we give these desires room in our minds and in our hearts, it's conceived. There you have it. We've, we've, we've taken hold of the hook, right? What happens next? After conception, when it has deceived, gives, now we actually have birth, 
to sin. We've already sinned. Don't misunderstand what James is saying here. He simply wants to differentiate between the sin committed already internally and now the external act. We actually act on those desires. Christ makes that clear back in Matthew chapter 5. He tells us, yes, the sin of adultery, a physical act, but he who looks on a woman with lust has already committed adultery. So don't get confused here on what James is saying, that, okay, as long as this only happens internally, I haven't really sinned. If you conclude that, you've completely missed his point. He's simply differentiating between sin internally, which is the conception of desire, and now actually acting on it, giving birth to sin. That's the second step in this life cycle. What's the third step? Sin grows up. Some of us know this. It grows up. It matures. And one sin becomes what? A habit. And then a habit becomes what? A way of life. And it just grows up and grows up. And then what's the end of this life cycle? When it is fully grown, it brings forth death. And so there you have it in every sinful desire. From conception to actual birth to maturity, it all results in what? Death. Physical death. Justice, the just penalty for every sin we have ever committed. And ultimately what? Eternal death. Separation from the living God. Because you see this living God, as he's going to go on to say in verse 17, we'll just touch on it now, it's coming later. This living God, every good gift and every perfect gift comes, comes from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. A holy God's response to our sin. There you have it. The certainty of death. Three truths. I'll repeat them. The origin of temptation. 14th verse, 13th verse. We're very clear on that. The deceitfulness of desire. 14th verse. And now the certainty of death. 15th verse. Three truths. Now, you, privately, as an individual, we're talking together. Or perhaps me, myself, I'm seeking counsel from somebody else. And what is on our mind is simply this, uh, this battle within. It is a battle. And it rages fast and furious at times. And we get it. We now know where this temptation comes from. We now know that desire ultimately is deceitful, and we now know the end game in each and every circumstance. It is death. You're looking for help. I'm looking for help. We have a conversation. How do we deal with this battle within? How do we deal with these realities? And I'm now talking to you one-on-one. -on -one. The first thing I want to know is this, is what? Are you a Christian? It's the first thing I want to know. It determines everything. Everything. Are you a Christian? Do you understand your predicament? Do you understand what Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 3? That there is none good. No, not one. None. There is none righteous. No one. And there is no one who seeks after God. 
Together they have turned aside. We have become utterly useless in the sight of God. As he makes clear elsewhere, we are dead to God. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Do we understand our predicament, our status, our condition in the sight of a holy God? And do we understand that our sin brings us under condemnation? We are not awaiting a trial. The trial has already taken place. And the sentence has already been passed. We're merely waiting for the sentence to be carried out. Physical death followed by eternal death. And do we understand the glories of the cross? Do we understand that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Do we understand that the just died for the unjust? The righteous died for the unrighteous. Do we understand, do we look to the Lord Jesus and his substitutionary sacrifice where he became sin for me and he bore the wrath of God as the just penalty for my sin? Have I been there? Do I understand that? And do I realize what it means to be made one with him through faith and to know that having been justified through faith, I now have peace with God? All right, if you're not a Christian, we're going to have that conversation. And it's pretty much the only conversation we're going to have because there's no, I, I can't go anywhere else with you until you are part of the family of God and until we understand who we are by nature in ourselves, that nothing good dwells in us and who we are once we become a Christian, one with God's beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So now let's make the assumption you are a believer, you're a Christian. Oh, but the battle within past week has been horrendous, the battle within, those desires of the flesh, the body and of the mind. Or perhaps it's a struggle you have waged off and on for a few months now. Or dare, dare we go down this road? It is a battle you have been waging for years and years and years. What do I say to you? First thing I say to you is pretty much what I said to the unbeliever. We start with the gospel, right? And we start with our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I remind you and I remind myself uh, of the Father's electing love. That he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Apart from what? Merit. And then I remind you of the Son's redeeming love. That God poured out his love, displayed his love publicly there upon Calvary's cross when the Lord Jesus Christ, he gave up the Lord Jesus Christ for us. Oh, the Son's redeeming love. And it is without what? Merit. And then I remind you of the Spirit's regenerating love. That moment in time when he entered in and he gave us eyes to see, he removed the veil. He dispelled the darkness so that we finally saw reality for the first time. Really understood who we were before God. Really understood who God is and the significance of Christ's death, substitutionary death upon Calvary's cross. And I remind you that that regenerating love, as with the Father's electing love and the Son's redeeming love, and now the Spirit's regenerating love, is without merit. None of this depends on us, but it is a free gift of His grace. 
we go down that road and we celebrate together the glories of the gospel and God's love, unchanging, unconditional love for His people in Christ Jesus. And then I tell you, look, there are a couple of dangers out there. There are lots of dangers out there. But one in particular that is very real and one that many believers struggle with in our day is this. Uh, They're believing only half a gospel. They're believing only half a gospel. And so we go, for example, to Titus chapter 2. And there in Titus chapter 2, Paul reminds us that the grace of God has has been revealed. Uh, That is the Lord Jesus Christ, his coming into this world, his death upon Calvary's cross, his subsequent uh, resurrection and ascension. The grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has come into this world, bringing salvation to all people. Amen. It's only half the gospel. Bringing salvation to all people. What does Paul go on to say there in Titus 2? He tells us that he came not only to bring salvation, but to train us, that is to teach us to deny worldly passions and how to live sensibly, at self-control, righteously and godly in, not then, now, in the present age. That is the gospel. I say, is it possible you've only been believing half, half the gospel? Is it possible you revel in the first half? Yes, oh, God's grace. Yes, the grace of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, uh, whereby he secured my redemption. Oh, yes, I'm in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm one with him, and I know a day is coming when I will stand before God, and he will receive me, not because of my own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. That is my hope. That is where I place my faith. That is what I celebrate. That is what I want to hear. Amen, amen, and amen. But it is only half the gospel. He not only came to save us, folks, he came to change us. Change us into what we are not currently. And he came to teach us and to train us to live right now, sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And once we're clear on that, Once we're clear on the full scope of the gospel and God's purpose for us, we go to Scripture. And basically what I do is this. I give you Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments of waging this battle within. And I put them to you and I remind myself of them by way of question. Ten of them. And here they are quickly. An accompanying text. Many different texts we could go to. But at least one text, a couple comments on each. Here they go. Question number one, first commandment. Do you devour the word? That's the first thing I'm going to want to know. Do you devour the word? Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so weekly, on a weekly basis, are you devouring the Word? The Word is the only means by which the Spirit of God works in our hearts. Even worship. Do we understand what is happening right now? Do we get what is happening Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? We're engaged in worship 
So often we restrict worship to praise and thanksgiving. Praise and thanksgiving is a part of worship. It is not the main part of worship. The main part of worship is this. God is speaking to us to conform us into the image of His Son that we might actually live our lives as an act of worship. And so when we gathered here this morning, Chris began with God's call to worship. God commanded us to be here. And He commanded us now in this hour to come before Him in worship. We sang songs based on Scripture. And then we turned to God's Word, and now God is teaching us by His Spirit, through His Word, from Scripture. And then we're going to end, I'm going to end with what? God's benediction and blessing. So you have God's invitation to come worship. You have God teaching us through His Word, and then God blessing us and sending us out. Do you understand what is happening? God himself is discipling you. No one's ever discipled me. What do you think is happening on a Sunday morning? Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, God is discipling you. He invites you into worship. He teaches you through his word, and he blesses you as he sends you out. Are you appropriating and devouring the word in public and in private? The second question is this. Do you plead with God? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do you plead with God? I'm vulnerable to pride, like Ananias and Sapphira. So Lord, keep me from man's applause. I'm vulnerable to greed like Demas. So, Lord, keep me from riches. I'm vulnerable to lust like David. So, Lord, keep me from Bathsheba. And on and on and on it goes. Are you regularly, consistently pleading your case before God? Third question is this. Do you esteem the church? Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so a young man comes to me and says, look, I'm struggling with this particular sin. These are my three first questions. The Word of God, pleading with God, and this young man's estimation of the church and what I want to know is this. How is he availing himself of what God has made available through the local church? Uh, is, this, is this young man in worship? Is it his priority to be under the word of God Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? Is this young man involved in care group where the word is opened, there is corporate prayer, there is accountability, a measure of fellowship, iron sharpens iron. Is this young man engaged in ministry in some way, serving, involved? Is he putting himself out there, developing those relationships in which there's accountability and mutual edification and encouragement? If his answer to that question is no, 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 what's my response? We've got nowhere to go until you actually start using what God has put at your disposal. If you're going to neglect the means that God has provided through the local church, if we're going to neglect what God has put at our disposal, I promise you, there will be problems. I promise you. If we neglect the means of grace that God himself has ordained for his people, and through our own carelessness, slothfulness, stubbornness, call it whatever you want, and yet still 
wrestle with the battle within, and we're looking here, there, everywhere for help. We are missing the forest for the trees and not understanding to a great extent we are feeding the battle by neglecting what God himself has ordained for our good. Sometimes we are our own worst enemy, friends. Our own worst enemy. Fourth question is this. Do you keep busy? Romans 12, 11, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Oh, the prime example of this is David himself, isn't he? His, 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 his army is out fighting front lines battlefield. David is king of his army. He should be there with them. Where was David? He was at home. Idle hands. Inactivity. He became what? A sitting lame duck for the passions of the flesh. Oh, keep busy in the work of the Lord. Fifth question is this. Do you see life as a battle? Some of us as Christians, we've got it all wrong. We think we're just supposed to be able to coast through life. We're so in love with ease and comfort. And the first sign of trouble, we just think something's drastically wrong. No, life is a battle. This is difficult. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. So do Christians. They exercise self-control. The word in the Greek for self-control, agonizomai, from which we get our English word, agony. Therefore, self-control in the life of the Christian is going to involve what? Agony. If we're not prepared to embrace that, guess what? We're going nowhere fast. We are involved in a battle. J.C. Ryle stated it as follows, there is no holiness without warfare. That may apply to you, friend, and you may need to think long and hard on that. There is no holiness without warfare. Sixth question is this, do you consider the consequences of this battle waging within? Proverbs 8, 36, all who hate me love death. Am I really that insensible? Am I really, let me state it a little more pointedly. Am I really that ignorant? All who hate me, says wisdom, all who hate me love death. Do I not understand that to meddle with these passions of the flesh and to feed them and to allow them to conceive and then to act on them and then to hide them and then, and, and then to, 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 to absolve myself of all responsibility, seeking to blame others, do I not understand that in doing that, I am actually proclaiming my love of death? And I am inviting the negative consequences. Oh, John Owen, I just, from memory, I don't know if these were his exact words. Wasn't it Owen? Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. There is no other alternative before us. They're the only two things on the table. You kill it, or it will kill you. There are negative consequences. And some might say to me right now, oh, you're just trying to make me scared. You're just trying to frighten me. Yes, I am. We draw by love, and we drive by fear. Nothing wrong with that. We draw with the strings of love, Calvary's cross. And when necessary, we drive by fear. The fear of the Lord. And the fear of what it means to fall under the displeasure of a holy God. Seventh question is this. Do you guard your mind? 
Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life, and the mind is the gateway to the heart. And when you're on that hour journey by yourself, you've turned off the radio, pure silence, where does your mind go? Wherever your mind goes, my friend, you now know who you are before the Lord and nothing more. That is who we are. Where our mind goes when it is in neutral tells us exactly who we are. The passions of the flesh. Oh, keep your heart with all vigilance. The ways in which we use our mind will inevitably determine the direction of our life and the bent of our character. Question number eight, eighth commandment. Do you remember? This is what I would ask you. Do you remember you're dead? You're actually dead. Romans 6. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Kevin DeYoung, you remember that book we went through last year on holiness? He stated in that book, this is wonderful. God says to you as a Christian, this is what God says to you. Because you believe in Christ by the Holy Spirit, I have joined you to Christ. Amen and amen. When Christ died, you died. When Christ rose, you rose. Christ is in heaven, so you're in heaven. Christ is holy, so you are holy. Your position right now, objectively and factually, is as a holy, beloved child of God, dead to sin, alive to righteousness, and seated in my holy heaven. And then God adds this. Now live like it. This is who you are. Now live it out in life. Remembering your identity in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The ninth question is this. Do you confess your sin? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we, we confess fully, don't we? Lord, I stole four car tires but neglect to mention they're still attached to the car. Forgive me, Lord. Uh, We be specific, and we get it right as we lay it before the Lord, and we be sincere. Lord, I don't know what. Forgive me for the car I've just stolen, and forgive me for the one I'm going to steal tomorrow night. Well, that's not very sincere, is it? We've already determined in our minds that this is going to happen again. I'm going to go down exactly the same mind. I just want to kind of cover things and make sure things are okay right now so that you don't get me or something like this. It's amazing where our mind goes and how we justify ourselves, even when we come to God in prayer. Oh, pray specifically and sincerely, knowing His willingness to forgive us in the Lord Jesus. And then the tenth and final question. Do you look to Christ? Colossians 3.1. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And as we look to Christ, as we seek Christ, and as we understand Christ, we are overwhelmed, overwhelmed by God's redeeming love for us in Christ Jesus. When I am overwhelmed by God's redeeming love for me in Christ Jesus, what happens? It breeds humility. It breeds poverty of spirit. Here's the key. Desire, the passions of the flesh, cannot, cannot, cannot thrive in a humble heart. Work it backwards. If they are thriving, I have a pretty good idea why. I'm not so humble. I'm not so poor in spirit. If I'm not so humble, not so poor in spirit, I have a pretty good idea why. 
I'm not really grasping or appreciating the redeeming love of God as poured out in Christ Jesus. Therefore, I need to get back to the cross. And I need to remind myself by God's help of the gospel and what it means for Christ to love me and give himself up for me. I have to think on the wounds of Christ and the agony of soul as he hung upon cross, the cross and hear his scream, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And understand that that sin, that desire, that thing that I am struggling with, wrestling with, that is what caused that bloody agony. Yes, that is what caused, not sin in the general. The sins we're struggling with and hiding from other people, that is what caused his bloody agony. And then I see his love, don't I? And I am humbled yet again at the foot of the cross. And where there is humility, what naturally dies? Love of self. And when love of self dies, the passions of the flesh go. And those skewed, and twisted desires of the body and the mind, they dissipate into the back. Oh, but it's an ongoing struggle, is it not? Those are the ten words of wisdom, the ten commandments I would give you, but it is an ongoing struggle. It is the life to which we have been called until God sees fit to call us home to fight this battle within. And it becomes even more complicated, doesn't it? It becomes even more complicated when we throw something else into the mix. Well, I should say, when we throw someone else into the mix. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or what I think is actually a far more accurate translation, deliver us from the evil one. There's something else going on. There's a whole other set of factors, insinuating circumstances surrounding us. And how does the devil factor into this? And how do we wage this battle within against desire, against temptation, against this conception of sin, the birth of sin, the cultivation of these habits that ultimately lead to death? How do we handle Satan in all of this? Well, that's where we're going to return two Sundays from now. Next Sunday, the book of Psalms. And when we return to the book of James, Lord willing, a couple of Sundays from now, we'll see how the devil factors into this equation and what it means to wage this battle within against all rulers and authorities and powers and dominions and principalities. Our Father, we do pray now that you would bless your word to our hearts. We pray that you would make it come alive to us and that you would implant it deep, deep, deep within. We praise you for your glorious grace, the grace you have shown us in so many marvelous ways, but far exceeding all the grace that you've poured out at Calvary's cross. And we pray that this would be our delight each and every day that we would contemplate your love for us, a love unmerited, a love unconstrained, a love undeserving, and that truly this would be the principle that would govern our lives, that we would love you, the one who first loved us. We ask it in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.